Let's turn to Matthew 21, and I want to backtrack to the paragraph, the concluding paragraph of our study last week. Um, This is making progress in reverse, but as Howard Hendricks used to say, I'd far rather have the Gospel of Matthew get through us than get through the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, since we don't have any particular time schedule to try to maintain, I'd like to go back and look at this at this section again because there were some questions that rose out of our uh, time of, of uh, looking into the Word last week, and I want to be sure that we understand what Jesus is saying because this is such, a, such an extraordinary thing that the Lord does here. It, it just seems totally out of keeping with our Lord's uh, normal behavior. Uh, he actually seems to throw a temper tantrum here and act with real malice toward a poor innocent fig bush. And uh, since we know that the Lord was here as God himself, God incarnate, the God-man through whom God planned to express his character, we need to understand what's going on here because it, Jesus' behavior seems anything but God-like. Now let's uh, go back to verse 18 and read those uh, verses. Matthew 21, 18 through 22. Now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, what we have to understand here is that the Lord is not teaching the disciples how to go about Palestine zapping fig trees. That's not the point of the action which Jesus took. This is a parabolic action. In other words... Uh, the Lord is uh, teaching through his, through his actions, much like the prophets of the Old Testament did. They not only taught through uh, story and through song and through lecture, but they acted out revelation, and that's what the Lord is doing here. This is designed for the disciples. Uh, the Lord did that frequently. I think perhaps one that we uh, have missed is, the, is found in John 8, when the This woman was dragged out of her house by the religious leaders of that time and uh, humiliated before all the people on the street. She had been caught in the act of adultery. And these men had absolutely no interest in her, no compassion for her. There was no effort on their part to try to reach out and, and, and reclaim her and save her. They just judged her and condemned her. And uh, when they brought her before Jesus, they said, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such a one as this. What do you say? And Jesus sat down in the dirt and wrote with his finger in the sand. And it always used to baffle me that uh, John doesn't tell us what he wrote, but what he wrote is insignificant. The fact is that he wrote. And I think the Lord there is acting out in a parabolic way a truth that Jeremiah had uttered 500 years ago, uh, 500 years prior to this time, when he said, those who who are not aligned with God in his way of looking at things, their names will be written in the dirt. And uh, he's saying something to these people. You see, they, they would remember the prophet Jeremiah. 
And they would understand what Jesus was saying. You're not looking at things the way God looks at things. And this was a, then a parable in, in action, you see. Now, I think this is what Jesus is doing with the fig tree. He's not throwing a mad fit because the fig tree didn't uh, feed him when he was hungry. He, he's teaching us something, and specifically here the apostles. Now, Jesus came hungry. Perhaps he had uh, missed breakfast that morning. And uh, he's on his way down uh, the slopes of uh, the Mount of Olives, on his way back to the Temple Mount again. And uh, he sees this fig tree, and he thinks, aha, now here's a chance to teach the disciples something that perhaps I couldn't teach any other way. And he approaches the fig tree. Now, he knew that fig trees didn't have uh, figs this time of the year. It's spring, and anyone who lived in Palestine knew that they bore fruit in the fall of the year. And uh, he had noticed that this fig tree was already dying. It was withering. And so he pronounces judgment on the tree. And it withered in front of the disciples' eyes. Now, the Lord came to this fig tree hungry as people from all nations were coming to the temple hungry and thirsty. They were, they were empty and unsatisfied. They didn't know how to heal their marriages they didn't know how to conquer sin in their life. They had no power over habits that gripped them. They were inhibited and fearful, frightened by life. They, they didn't know how to deal with guilt. And they were looking for righteousness, longing for it. Uh, as the psalmist says, as the heart longs after the water brooks. They, but they didn't know where to find it. They, they came to the temple. The temple was supposed to be the center of spiritual life in the... Uh, in Judea, and there was nothing there. There was a lot of ritual and rigmarole, and people were manipulating each other and exploiting each other and holding bingo games and all sorts of things going on, but, but there was no life. No one was being taught the truth, and there was no way to deal with guilt. And they were frustrated, just as Jesus was when he was hungry, looking for something to eat. And so he pronounces judgment on the fig tree, just as our Lord... Uh, predicted judgment on the nation of Israel. Within 40 years, the Roman army implemented this judgment. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, so that it ceased to exist as the spiritual center of, of, that, of that people. Now, that's the point of all of this, and as I said before, it's specifically for the disciples, because these men were going out throughout the Roman Empire, uh, carrying on a ministry of healing and helping people reaching the, the deepest spiritual needs that, that they had. And everywhere they went, they would encounter the same sort of opposition that Jesus encountered. And the point of this parable is that they should let the Father handle the opposition. Their, their ministry was to be positive. They were to go out helping people and uh, let God deal with the opposition, that he in his own way and in his own time would judge those who stood against the extension of the kingdom of God. And uh, when the disciples express their amazement over the Lord's action, Jesus says, you'll be able to do the same thing. It's just a matter of exercising faith. Believe me. Count on me. And uh, I'll take care of the obstacles that, that come your way. That's the context behind the statement in verse 22. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, it's important that we understand what's behind that promise, because here's one case where everything doesn't mean everything. He's, he's thinking specifically of their need to rely upon the Lord to 
take away the opposition that they would face. This is not a promise that God will give you everything your heart desires. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us in in the evangelical community don't understand. We think that, as John White says, God is like a celestial vending machine. You drop in a quarter, and out comes a goodie. But uh, that's not the way God is. The everything in this context means everything in line with the nature and the character and the kingdom of God. Whatever accomplishes his best uh, ends, whatever he's after in our life and in the world, those things we can pray for with with assurance and with authority. But uh, where God has not promised or where the request is not in line with God's character, then uh, the prayer is, is invalid. God doesn't have to listen to or respond to prayers like that. Now, if you stop and think for a moment, you know logically that's true. As John White, uh, in his book, uh, uh, Parents in Pain, points out, it would be totally inappropriate to pray, Lord, kill my neighbor, he bugs me. Somehow we know that that's not a good prayer. It's not one that God's going to hear. Or, Lord, help me to lie convincingly so I can cheat my customers. No, that's not a good prayer. Uh, However, if we think reasonably, we'll also realize that the prayer, Lord, save my husband, or save my wife, or bring my children back to the Lord, is not necessarily a prayer which the Lord can or will answer, because the Lord does not force his good things down anyone's throat. Judas is a good example of one whom I'm sure the Lord prayed for day after day after day, and yet he never responded. Now, it is God's will in terms of his desire that people come to know him. But people have the right to be wrong. God permits us to choose against the truth. That's what makes us human. And therefore, he'll never force uh, us to make choices against our will. And therefore, we have no assurance that our prayers, save my husband or save my wife, will, will be answered. But what God does promise is the grace to live in a family with a non-Christian family member and be stable and gracious and kind and loving. That's what he promises. That's the salvation that that, uh, he offers. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the parable of the the people working in the vineyard who thought the the, uh, owner of the vineyard had treated them unjustly, uh, a woman came up to the front and she said, you know, about two or three weeks ago, I learned that principle. I used to sit in church and daydream about the time when my husband would come to know the Lord. And we would sit together and fellowship together and he would lead uh, worship in our home and, and everything would be uh, just great in our family. But she said, I was living in a fantasy world. It's not real. And what I've discovered is that God may never bring my husband to himself, but he'll give me what I need to live in that family, see? Now, the corollary to this principle is that God is not necessarily interested in our comfort. (laughs) There are greater issues at stake. It's all right to pray if you lose your contact lenses that you'll find them or that if if you're low on gas in the middle of the desert that God will get you to the next gas station, but he doesn't necessarily answer requests like that. You may have to squint your way through the day. You may have to walk 20 miles. That may be God's will as, as well, you see? Because uh, those are areas where there are, there are simply no guarantees 
And it may be God's will that we suffer somewhat because there are greater issues at stake. God is ultimately concerned that we grow up to maturity and that his kingdom be extended. Those are the, really the important issues in life. And there are times when God may have to be tough in order to accomplish those ends. That's what, um, that's what Lewis calls severe mercy. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. He's available to us. He's everything we need. But it may please him to bruise us. As, as he did his own son. Isaiah tells us that it pleased the father to bruise the son. He had to hurt in order to accomplish redemption because there was a greater issue at stake than the, than the, than the father sparing the son's life. Hebrews says he was heard during his, his prayers for deliverance, but what God heard was the prayer to take him safely through it. He didn't deliver him from that period of suffering. He had to suffer because there were greater issues at stake. Uh, just this past week, I read an article by Helmut Tielke entitled um, Talking About God or Talking to God. Very helpful article. The, the point that he was making is that in times when we're under pressure, uh, how do we react? Do we talk about God? Do we begin to discuss theology? Is there a God? Is he good? Does he care? Is he all-powerful? Or do we talk to God, as Jesus did on the cross when he he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, why has God forsaken me? He talked to the Father. He said, why have you forsaken me? And uh, his point is that in times of, of real stress, we need to understand that God is still there and available, though he may be taking us through a, a period of, of real pain and hurt. And the illustration that he used was a friend of his, who lived in Hamburg. He was a young minister there um, with the Lutheran Church. And during the time when the Allies were bombing Hamburg, he lost four children in two weeks in separate bombing incidents. And uh, Tielke says, My friend Freilich learned how hard God can be. Now, that's a side of God's character we don't often think about. God can be tough because there are greater issues at stake, you see. And therefore, we can't pray that God will make our life comfortable and easy and, and everything go our way and, and that he'll, he'll, you know, like one of these 24-hour uh, uh, teller machines where you stick your data card in and out comes $20. Whenever we have a need, God just immediately supplies it unless he's promised and unless it's in line with his character and his nature, you say. Now, those, in those areas where God has promised, we can ask with real authority, but where he has not, we have... We have no reason to expect that he will necessarily make our life comfortable or easy because there are greater issues at stake. But what we need to understand is that through the tough times, the Lord gives us whatever we need to face that situation. The resources are there. The calmness is there. The poise and the peace, whatever is required in terms of, of character. Now, with that behind us, let's go on to verse 23. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? The uh, battle lines had been drawn at this point. The Pharisees now realized that the Lord was not in this for fun and games. He wasn't playing for nickels and dimes. This was serious business. And the, the things that they mentioned here are the things which Jesus had, done, had just done. He'd gone right into the center 
of the spiritual life of the nation and created an uproar. He cleansed the temple, threw out the money changers, stopped the worship. Uh, it would be somewhat like uh, walking into the Senate chambers in Washington, D.C. and shutting down the proceedings there and demanding that they stop uh, deliberating. That's what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests realized that they had to take action. They could not go on ignoring the Lord's activities. He had forced their hand to some extent. And so the, the ruling body, the chief priests and the elders, confronted him. The chief priests here we know were Caiaphas and Annas, whom the Lord later met in his trial. And uh, it would be somewhat like having an audience with uh, President Carter and with his cabinet and members of the Supreme Court. These were the leaders, the big guns in the nation. And they came to him with this question. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, that's a good question. Their reason for asking it was entirely wrong. They wanted to challenge the Lord. But uh, it's still a good question to ask. All of us have to have some authority on which we base our life. There has to be some uh, authority that we turn to to justify our actions. It may be the state, or it may be your conscience, or it may be the stars if you're into astrology. Or it could be what a friend tells you that you have uh, confidence in. Or it could be Ann Landers. A lot of people uh, uh, assume that Ann Landers is the ultimate authority, which always surprises me because we know absolutely nothing about the woman. Some of her counsel is very good. Some of it is very bad. Some of it is true. Some of it, uh, some of it is not. And uh, I know nothing about her. I don't know anything about her authority and what she bases her decisions upon. But yet, for many people, she is the ultimate authority. They look at the paper every day to see what Ann Landers has to say about how to live life successfully today. A number of years ago, I uh, was asked to speak to a group of men in a fraternity house. And they asked me to speak on the the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And so I decided to talk on the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the Beatitudes, and pointed out how totally unorthodox Jesus' teaching was. He just took all of the world's ideas and stood them on their head. And uh, that he talked in terms of weakness instead of strength, and setting aside your rights, and uh, putting away resentment when you were treated uh, unjustly, and and those sorts of things. And afterwards, a young man came up and he said, uh, I think you have it all wrong. He said, I, I have uh, I found uh, that living for yourself is the way to go. He said, I'm a totally self-centered, autonomous man. I don't need anyone. And I think the only way to get through this life is to be completely self-centered and selfish. And I said, well, that's an interesting philosophy of life. But I said, one of the problems with uh, arriving at a conclusion too early in life is that you may not have all the information that you need, and you may end up as a, a disillusioned old man looking back on your life with a lot of bitter regrets. I said, how do you know that that particular style of life is, is a good one for this world? He said, well, I, my authority in life is John Galt. And I could hardly believe my ears. Here was a, an upperclassman in a, on a university campus who had chosen 
as his authority a man who doesn't even exist. As some of you know, John Galt is a character that Ian Rand invented. Uh, and uh, he is a totally self-centered person who just goes about uh, living his own life as he pleases and stepping all over everyone else. And, and he gets through life beautifully. He gets everything he wants, but he's a paper person. He doesn't exist. And here was a young man who, who, who based his whole life on a fictitious authority, a man who doesn't even exist, you see. Well, that's a good question to ask ourselves. What am I basing my life upon? What's the authority that I've chosen that will direct my actions and control my attitudes? That's the question that the Pharisees raise of Jesus. In verse 24, Jesus answers. Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? Now, you'll notice that the Lord doesn't answer directly. He seldom did. And uh, I think there's a reason why he didn't at this point. Had he answered directly, they would have lynched him right then and there. Had he said, my authority is that of the Son of God, I have authority because I came from heaven, they would have dragged him outside of town and, and slain him, stoned him, probably. This was the Passion Week, and uh, this was probably Monday of the week on which the Lord was crucified on Friday. But yet there was much to be accomplished. As someone has said, he had an infinite job to do and about five days to do it. And uh, so he knew that there were still things to be done. So he doesn't answer directly. But there's another reason why he didn't answer directly. He wanted to expose the hypocrisy of, of these men. And so he answers their question with a question. Let's, he says, talk about the baptism of John. Just uh, for a point of discussion, what was his authority? Did it come from heaven or did it come from men? Now, you notice he doesn't uh, select John as an individual because John was widely held to be a prophet. I think uh, even some of the Pharisees would have to acknowledge that John himself had an authority that no one else of that time, apart from Jesus, had. When John went down to the Jordan and began to preach, thousands of people came to him from Jerusalem. And uh, what the Pharisees had seen was that people's lives were being changed. Soldiers were becoming less harsh and, and less demanding, more charitable. And uh, prostitutes were being gathered in off the streets, and their lives were changed. They were giving up their vocations, and, and uh, they could, he could tell, the Pharisees could tell, that John's ministry had had an impact upon his times. So it, Jesus doesn't make John the issue. He makes his baptism. Now, the reason was because his baptism was a moot question. It was something that annoyed the, the Pharisees no end. The uh, Jews of Jesus' day knew about baptism. Uh, Jews baptized Gentiles. Uh, whenever a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, he or she was baptized as a sign of their identification with the people of God. But uh, what made John unique, and the reason why he was called John the Baptizer, was because he made a big issue of baptism. He, he, he came marching into, into town and he said, You Jews aren't even Jews. You're not God's people. You Jews need to be baptized. And that was very offensive to the clergy of that day. They didn't like that at all. And uh, it's that issue that Jesus selects. Now he says, let's talk about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? 
Now, what, what the Lord is um, saying here is that there are really only two authorities in life. Uh, we can think of a lot of different authorities that we base our actions upon, but what it really boils down to is two sources of authority. Either God is our authority or man. Either we're theists or we're humanists. There, there simply is no other option. Now, it would be nice if uh, we could divide all of mankind into those two classifications, but unfortunately, that's not the case. All of us are a mixture of both, even Christians and non-Christians. When it comes right down to it, a lot of Christians, though they would, they would say, oh, we're not, we're not humanists, our authority is God, we all have a lot of ideas that didn't come from God at all. There's some man's idea. Perhaps he's learned, went to the right seminary, or he has the right credentials, and we'll listen to him, and we'll say, ah, that's truth, because he said it. He went to Dallas Bible, or Dallas uh, Seminary, or wherever. But uh, really, you know, it's a man, and he didn't necessarily get God's word straight at that point. So we all are sort of a mixture. It's also true of non-Christians. That even though many of them would say we're humanists, we believe that man is the measure of all things and the ultimate authority, they also have a lot of godlike ideas sourced in God. That's where they came from. One of the things that I like to do is to speak to non-Christian men and talk to them about the family and uh, simply teach them what the Bible says about uh, how to keep a marriage together and how to love your wife, and, and, uh, but not tell them that it came from the Bible. And very often they'll say, boy, you know, I've been doing that and it works. Or those are great ideas. We need to try some of those things. And then they're surprised to discover that it's God who said that all along. What they didn't realize is that, that for a long time they've been operating on principles that came right out of God's word, but they never acknowledged God. They didn't know it. You see what Jesus is doing is he's drawing the lines. Well, let me start. Let's, let's take a look at John's baptism. How do you evaluate it? What are his credentials, his sources of authority? Did John baptize because he was God was, was uh, his authority or some man? Well, this uh, threw them, and they go into a huddle in verse 25. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say uh, to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all, all hold John to be a prophet. Now, it, it's obvious from reading these words that the Pharisees knew exactly where, where John's baptism came from. That's why they were afraid to admit that it came from heaven, because they would be self-condemned. They would have to believe John, and they would have to believe John's witness about Jesus. And they knew, but they didn't want to respond, because they knew that their whole that their life would stand condemned. If they did, and they were afraid of the people, so they didn't. They didn't know what to say. They, as a friend of mine uh, describes this uh, this uh, crisis, this is what's called in chess a fork. Any move you make will result in the loss of of one of your pieces. And so they were they were stymied. And what Jesus does here is what he does so beautifully. And he's still doing it to us. He just tears the facade away. He just rips the mask off so that they could see themselves for what they really are. You know, they knew way down deep inside. They knew the truth, but they didn't want to respond. And, you know, the more I'm around, the more convinced I become that no one ever rejects Jesus Christ 
for intellectual reasons. They don't reject him because they've convinced themselves that it's not true. They know it's true. There, there is a, a nagging kind of certainty that it's really true. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells about his conversion, and he says the thing that really, that finally triggered it was a, an atheist friend of his. They were walking through the halls of Magdalen College, and, and this, this old rumpled-up atheist that was his best friend was walking along with his hands in his pockets, and he says, rum thing. They were talking about the resurrection of, of Christ, and he says, rum thing, rum thing. It really seems to have happened, rum thing. And Lewis said, something just snapped in his mind, and he realized that it did happen. He had known it all along. But uh, as Scripture puts it, the reason people don't believe it is because they don't want to believe it. They love, we all love darkness rather than light. We want to cover up. It's our pride. It's our desire to do it all by ourselves. We don't want a man to tell us anything. I'm, Carolyn will tell you I'm that way. I'm the most independent guy in the world. I don't want to be told anything by anybody. I don't want to submit to any person in my natural state. And, and here the Lord comes along and he, and he says, I want to control your life. I want to run your life. I want to rule and reign. And I know that he is worthy of lordship. And I know that I need a lord, but I just want to try a little bit longer on my own, you see. I have so often uh, sat and talked to people about their relationship to the Lord, and they bring up one intellectual problem after another. And, and I do think we ought to help people uh, think through the, the logical, reasonable base that we have to, to Christian faith. We're, Christians are not naive. We haven't been bamboozled by some slick evangelist. Uh, there really is a, a, a solid historical base to what we believe. The, the fact that Jesus lived and the impact that he had upon the world and the, uh, the effect that the church had upon its times is probably better attested than any other fact in history. And uh, the, the scriptures that we read, our belief that they are now as they came from the hand of the apostle who wrote them, is, that's better attested than the evidence for any other ancient manuscripts that we have. So there's a basis for what we believe. But I am convinced that that's not the problem. You can convince someone of the reasonableness of, of our relationship to the Lord, but what it really comes down to is a choice of the will. And that's where we hang up. We just don't want to submit. We will even act against our self-interests. There are times that we know that if we had a Lord, we could straighten our lives out, but we're so stubborn and proud, we just don't want to do it. And you see, that's what the Lord is doing here. He's just laying bare the real intent of their hearts. And so Jesus says in verse 27, they answer Jesus and say, we don't know, which incidentally is a very damaging admission. If they didn't know, who would know? They were the religious authorities. They were... They were charged with the responsibility of, of uh, uh, noting false prophets, casting them out. And they plead ignorance. We don't know. They knew the, the crowd would lynch them if they said John had no authority. And they knew if they said John had authority, then they'd have to believe Jesus. And they weren't prepared to make either one of those, uh, face either one of those choices. And so they say, neither will I tell you by what authority. Or they say, we do not know. So he says to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority 
I do these things. So he doesn't answer them directly, but uh, he does answer them. And the stories that follow, there are three in line, are both a revelation of the source of his authority and an indictment of these clergymen who are unwilling to respond to the authority of of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to read them all, but uh, let's read the first one, verses 28 through 32. What do you think, he says? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing, but he answered and said, I will not, yet afterward regretted it and went. Uh, Some of you may have versions in which those verses are reversed. Don't let it disturb you. It's just a different text, but it's the same story. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. That's why the Lord never won any uh, prizes as the outstanding young man in Jerusalem. Uh, Here's a father who gets up on Saturday morning, and he raps on the door of his oldest son's room, and he says, "Uh, Hey, we got to mow the lawn today. I need some help. And the boy says, Sure, Dad, be right out. And then he remembers that it's 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's just about time for the UCLA-Ohio State game. And so he thinks, well, I'll get around to it in a minute. So he goes into the TV room and props his feet up on the on the uh, TV set, and he turns it on, starts watching, gets a bowl of pretzels out, and envisions an afternoon of little NCAA football. And every once in a while he hears the lawnmower clatty clatty clack upstairs, and he Knows his dad's out there working, but he thinks, well, I'll get around to it in a minute. No, no malicious spirit at all. Just something he'd rather do. And he keeps thinking, uh, well, I'll, I'll help him later this afternoon. And then they have a rerun of the uh, Holmes-Ali fight, so he watches that. And then about 6 o'clock, he looks at his watch, and he realizes he has a date, and he's going to be late. So he rushes in, takes a shower gobbles something down, takes off in the car, and as he leaves in the car, he sees his dad out there in the dark edge in the yard. And there's just a little twinge of remorse, but he thinks, well, he'll understand, and I'll do it tomorrow. A lot of respect for his father, you see, but no obedience. Uh, The same morning, the father raps on the door of the second son, and he says, need a little help out in the yard? Son says, oh, dad, the football game is on at 11. And you know I've been counting on it all week. I want to see Art Schlister get his. It's time. You know, the game comes on in one hour. It's time. And uh, father says, no, I really need you, son. And son gets mad, slams the door, gets his little black and white TV set, sets it up on the on his uh, chest of drawers, turns it on, he watches it, and he hears clack, 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 clack. His dad's pushing the lawnmower out in the front yard. And he thinks, really need to go out there. And he struggles with his conscience a little bit. He didn't want to go. He'd far rather sit there and watch the football game. But uh, in a moment of decision, he turns off a TV set. 
and he goes outside. And that's exactly what the Lord is talking about. There are a lot of folks who respond to the Lord with real alacrity. I'll do it, Lord. Count on me. You know, and they go to church, and they teach Sunday school classes, and they serve on committees, and they give, do all the right things. Everything looks good on the outside. But down inside, there's just a rock-hard resistance to God's will. There's usually some issue that they won't face. Maybe it's some sexual thing. Maybe it's a relationship they don't want to relinquish. Maybe it's the fact that they're dishonest in their business and they know it. Or something, something that the Lord has put his finger on and they just are not willing to give it up. And they may say, I will, sir, but down inside there's just resistance. And there are other people that just uh, sort of stumble and fall through life and make all kinds of mistakes and struggle and and you share the gospel with them, and they say, no way, Jose, I've got my own life to, to live. I, I'm not interested in that. But down inside, they know. And they struggle with it for a while, and then they make the decision. And it's made at the deepest level of their being. And they're willing to relinquish every aspect of their life, no matter what it costs them. That's the faithful son, see. Uh, about three years ago, I had a something that was, for me, a real treat, one of the highlights of my life, really. I was invited down to San Diego to speak at a conference for professional athletes. They called it Professional uh, Athletes Outreach. And I was supposed to lead a Bible study, or lead a, a uh, workshop on Bible study methods. And I was like a kid in a candy store. Man, I had... Uh, Jim Zorn and Steve Largent in my workshop, and I was so excited, you know, and I called Brian at home and Randy to tell him what, uh, what we were doing and all these neat guys I was meeting. But uh, as I look back at that weekend, the person who impressed me the most was not an athlete at all. It was a woman. She, um, she was introduced the last night of the, of the conference. And as she walked up to the to the podium to speak, uh, she attracted everyone's attention. She was just a strikingly beautiful woman, nicely dressed. And she began to speak in a kind of a quiet voice and tell her story. And it turns out that she had, for 15 years, been a high-priced call girl in Las Vegas. And uh, she, as her story went, she, when she was just a young girl, she became interested in the theater and she went to New York and couldn't make it there, so she went to Hollywood, tried there working for some ad agencies. and She was contacted by a member of, of organized crime and eventually became a prostitute in Las Vegas, made a, an awful lot of money. And uh, her heart was really hard towards spiritual things, and, and uh, outwardly she had no, nothing but scorn, really, for the Christian faith. And one day... A friend of hers read a section of 1 Corinthians 6 to her where Paul says, Glorify God in your body. And she said, Roberta, she said, You know, someday you're going to stand before God. And he's going to say, Roberta, what have you done with your body? And she said, My whole world just came crashing down around me. Because I knew, I had known it all along that God owned my body, and I had been prostituting a gift that God had given to me. 
and she let Christ into her life. And that was the beginning of a new life for her. Now, that's what I think Jesus means when he says the harlots and the tax collectors get in before you. These religious folk, they had it all made. They were externally doing it all right. But down inside, there was that resistance to God's will. They would not submit. Whereas the, uh, the prostitutes of that day and the crooks and the con men and the people on the outside that had been rejected by organized uh, religion were the people that responded, by and large. Some from the other group, but by and large, it was these other folks. And that's the question we have to ask this morning. With which of those groups do we associate? Are we willing this morning to say right where we are, Lord Jesus, be my Lord? Or perhaps you've said that, but there's some issue in your life that the Lord has his finger on and you've been struggling and you're unwilling to let him have control of that issue. Will you do that this morning? Will you let him be Lord? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we want to thank you again for being our Lord. We recognize that your Lordship sometimes involves uh, a route that's not easy. It will involve a life that uh, where there may be um, sorrow and pressure, but we thank you that you're the one who supplies everything that we need to be your sons. That's what we want to be, God's men and women in this world, displaying before the world your beauty and your grace. Thank you that you're the one who enables us to be what we long to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.